Well, please t- turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. We will be looking at the first eight verses of this passage. Some of you may have heard this as I preached from this passage uh, before at a Presbyterian meeting. Um, I will I'll do it a little bit differently, focusing more on missions today. Um, let us pray before I, I read. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to your church. We pray that you would humble us before your greatness, and that you would build us up by your goodness and send us out to serve you. We pray that you would remind us again of your great gospel from a great God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. This is God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two... He covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. This is God's word. This is one of my very favorite passages in the whole Bible. It is the classic passage on the holiness of God. And we have this sense as we, as we read it almost that we ought to take off our shoes. We know that we are standing on holy ground before a holy God. This passage was the turning point for the prophet Isaiah. Possibly the, the moment when God called him out into ministry. Um, It might have occurred before the material that we see in the first five chapters of Isaiah. 
After this moment, Isaiah was never the same. His view of Israel, his view of himself, his view of sin, of the world, of everything, became drastically more clear in the blazing light of God's glory. Like Abraham before him and Moses before him, like Paul after him, and now on another level, like every Christian, when we see God, we are changed. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John that one day we will see him just as he is. And because we, will, we see him just as he is, we will be like him. We will be transformed by the vision of God. And even now, we are transformed as we behold him by faith. We are transformed from glory to glory. So it was with Isaiah. Isaiah saw the Lord, and his life was never the same. But this wasn't just a turning point for Isaiah. Our passage is a turning point for the entire nation. How do I know that? It's because this was the year that King Uzziah died. That's how our passage begins. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And we might just pass over this as just a marker of time. The, this is the year it happened. But this is not the way that the Bible generally marks the time. It usually would begin something like this. In the first year of King Jotham, that would be the king who reigned after Uzziah. But I think Isaiah is trying to emphasize something important. You see, Uzziah wasn't just any king. He had been almost a permanent figure in Judah. He had reigned for 52 years. There were probably few people in Israel that even remembered another king before him. After, under Uzziah, the kingdom of Israel had grown powerful. He was probably the greatest king of Judah since King Solomon. But lately, the kingdom had been on a decline. Uzziah grew powerful, and then he grew proud of his power. Even though he was just a sinful man, he decided that as king, perhaps he could enter the temple and try to offer some sacrifice without God's permission. But even kings are not great when it comes to God's greatness. Even holy men are not holy when they stand before the Lord. And God had provided a mediator, the priest, to stand between the king and himself. But King Uzziah had the pride to just walk up and to the temple himself. And God struck him with leprosy the moment he did so for the, to the end of his days. And here we see that holy God again on the throne in the year of King Uzziah's death. King Uzziah had grown into an old man, a leper. His power was declining. His enemies all around were growing stronger. The year that King Uzziah died would be a year of trouble for the people, a year of uncertainty, a year of fear. And it is in this time, this moment, 
that the Lord appears to Isaiah. And what does Isaiah see? He sees something that should give us comfort in the midst of all the changes that we go through. Isaiah sees the king, the real king. And that is, in fact, what Isaiah calls him here in verse 5. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And this makes this contrast especially clear. In the year that King Uzziah died, my eyes saw the king. As great as he was, King Uzziah was just a sinful, dying leper king. By contrast, God is the holy, eternal, almighty Lord of all. And what we have is a royal scene here, much like Micaiah, if you remember when I was preaching through the story of Elijah, the time of Elijah. Micaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne, about a hundred years before this, this passage in Isaiah 6. Here, Isaiah also sees a royal scene. God is the king. He sits on a throne, high and exalted. He has a royal robe that fills the temple. He has royal attendants, angels there, seraphim, to do his bidding. And he has an army, for he is called the Lord of hosts. That's what that means, the Lord of armies. And there is no limit to his reign. He has a dominion with no borders. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It is a great missionary verse, isn't it? To think our God reigns over the whole earth. He's not our particular God, the God of Mount Pleasant. He is the God of everything. And this God his character, his sovereignty, his glory, his holiness, it is the foundation for our missions. Sometimes we can guilt trip people into being missionaries. and You need to get out there and we can focus directly on missions. But this is not the thing that usually propels us out to missions. It's not the thing that propelled me out to missions when I became a missionary. But rather, God himself God's glory, God's gospel. If, I, if someone's struggling with assurance, they don't need to hear me lecture about the doctrine of assurance. They need to know about Jesus Christ in whom they are secure. If people want to be, go out into missions, they don't need to hear specifically about missions. They need to hear about our great God. And that, as it were, propels them to missions. When we hear the gospel, which we see in this passage so clearly, which I will speak of later, we, we recognize what type of people we are. We recognize what God has done. And then we just overflow with wanting to share it. The Lord Jesus, before he sent his disciples out, he said something similar. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I am the king of the whole world. Therefore, go and share the gospel and also tell them all to obey everything I have commanded you. 
and I'm with you even to the end of the age. It's God's sovereignty that propels us. God owns the world. He owns Mount Pleasant. He owns Taiwan. He owns Greece. And therefore, people all over the world ought to praise him. They ought to glorify him. Everyone on earth, whether they are Christians or not, whether they've ever heard of Jesus Christ, they owe everything they have to Jesus Christ. No other God has ever helped them because there is no other God. And it is our great joy to introduce them to the one who made them and the one who loves them more than we ever could. That is part of the joy of missions, the joy of sharing the gospel. We do it out of love for our neighbors, but we have something better than that, something higher than that. And that is the love of God. And we go and we proclaim his glory to the ends of the earth. In a sense, it doesn't matter if that person becomes a Christian or not. God is still glorified in the proclamation of his majesty. God, God desires his glory to be known throughout the whole world. He desires his name to be hallowed throughout the whole world for everyone to regard him as holy, for every knee to bow, every tongue to confess, which they will, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we see three things about God here that in particular drive us to missions. One, his sovereignty. He rules over everything. Two, his holiness. Three, his glory. Let me speak about his glory first. Glory is this word in Hebrew. It means something like weight, substance. God is heavy. He is substantial. He is important. And this glory, the term glory is often used of kings. Might, splendor, often is translated honor. The whole earth, though, is full of his glory, the angels say, the seraphim. The heavens, it says in Psalm, in the Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky tells forth of his handiwork. We reflect his glory. Psalms all, all, Psalm 8 also says, You have made man a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and honor. But this is not an independent glory that God has given us. It is his glory reflected. Isaiah 43 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. And Isaiah 48, For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. The glory that we have as people is only in relationship to God that we reflect who he is. Everything about God is glorious. He is called the King of glory, the Lord of glory. His presence is sometimes called his glory when the glory of God filled the, temp the tabernacle and the temple here in Isaiah 6, and the priests were weren't even able to enter it because of his presence there. 
but we have also fallen short of God's glory. God's glory is not just who he is in himself. God's glory is also manifested in what he does in his saving work. Romans says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have ruined somehow this image of God within us. But Jesus Christ has come to restore it. And so Romans will continue, Romans 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Glory restored to us. And all creation, Romans 8, now the whole creation awaits our complete redemption when creation itself will be set free into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. The story of redemption is a story of glory lost and glory restored. And it is God's glory to save. His glory is a saving glory. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God allowed his glory to pass in front of him. And he announced this. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. You know, Peter talks about how he saw the majestic glory on the mountain. We see it in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, when Jesus Christ is transfigured before his disciples. They see his glory. But John was the only one of those four, four Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he was the only one of those evangelists who actually saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And he is the only one who does not mention the transfiguration. Isn't that curious? It's not in the book of John. And he was the one who saw it with his own eyes. But he wants us to point, he wants us to see God's glory in a different way. He speaks in John chapter 1, of how Jesus dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus spoke in John of his crucifixion as the revelation of God's glory. John 13 now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Jesus' death is presented in John as the revelation of God's glory. One of the things that makes God's, God's uh, holiness so glorious to us is how he can restore glory in us, how he can justify the unjust, the, the gospel is God's, is God's righteous way of declaring the unrighteous righteous. In the cross, we see the full weight of God's wrath, his full hatred against sin poured out on Jesus Christ for us. And at the same time, we see our way of escape. We see God's mercy poured out on us too. So God doesn't just pass over our sins because it's okay for a little sin to be in heaven. 
No, he, he shows his holiness and his mercy in the, at the same time. And when we, we take these two things, his greatness and his goodness together, it's then when his glory really shines for us. It's, the cross is, is hard for the world to understand. It's, it seems like foolishness. But we glory in the cross. We glory in Jesus Christ. That glory, that propels us out. We want others to know, not just that God is glorious in Himself, but God loves to display His glory in the salvation of sinners. That's one thing we see here regarding missions. We also see God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy is what they declare. They could have declared other things, I suppose. God is love, love, love. God is powerful. They could have declared God is light. Here they declare God is holy, holy, holy. It's amazing too, these seraphim flying around above the Lord are remarkable in and of themselves. If if one appeared right here, we would be tempted to worship it. Six wings. Seraphim means burning ones. So they must have looked like they were on fire. They, with two of their wings, they cover their face with two. They cover their feet with two. They fly. And their voice shakes the whole temple as they cry out, holy, holy, holy. It would be scary to be around it. But they, they are in awe of God. Now we... We have plenty of reasons to be in awe of God. But it's hard for us to imagine holy beings that have no sin in absolute awe of God's majesty. That God is set apart even for them that they can't even look upon Him. Have we lost a sense of that majesty of God when we approach Him in our worship? Have we lost that sense when we approach Him in prayer? Has His willingness to receive us so graciously caused us to forget who He is? Who it is that we're approaching? His great majesty? You know, in, in Hebrew, there's, there's no way to say holier. They don't have that, or holiest. They express this comparative uh, by repetition. So Jesus would say, often say, truly, truly, I say to you, or amen and amen. But this is the only place where an attribute of God is repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. He's not just holy, he's holy in his holiness. And more than that, he's holy in the holiness of his holiness. There's no way to express it. There, how can I tell it? explain it to you when the the seraphim themselves are at a loss for words. He is absolutely holy. And if this holy God is on the throne, ruling over His church, ruling over you, and He is glorified in rescuing you, then how can you worry about tomorrow? How can you worry about today? Our God is on the throne. Our God reigns. Is there anything outside of His control? Does anything take Him by surprise? Is there any enemy that poses even the least threat to Him at all? 
No, there could never be. And yet he's a king who's interested in the most, the most minute details of your life. He knows every hair on your head. A tiny sparrow cannot fall to the ground without him knowing. He knows and he cares about details in your life that you don't care about. How does Psalm 113 say it? He said, Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and the needy from the ash heap. He is majestic and merciful at the same time. He is heavenly and he is a father. There is glory and there is grace, transcendence and imminence, all at one. How did Isaiah express it so often? He is the Holy One of Israel. Holy, but he identifies himself with us. Isn't that amazing? Therefore, we ought not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. If only our eyes of faith could ascend with Isaiah's, and we saw in the day of our trouble, in the day of our loss. We saw the Lord on his throne high and lifted up, reigning over all our problems. It would give us confidence in every trial. What if we could say that in the year I lost my job, I lost my loved one, I saw the king still on the throne, still in control. I want you to remember, brothers and sisters, this king is still on his throne, and he still reigns. And he is holy. It's something that we ought to rejoice in, but for Isaiah, it was something that blew him away, as it were. He was disintegrating. He was falling apart at the very sight of God's holiness. He knew that he was a sinful man. Peter experienced something similar when he was called out into the ministry. He was a fisherman. That's what he was good at. Jesus called him to throw the nets out one more time. Even though Jesus was a rabbi, not a fisherman, Peter decided to humor him. He throws the net out, and he can't even pull it back in. So many fish. And he realizes that he wasn't even really a good fisherman compared to Jesus. That the thing that he was most probably proud of, most skilled at, was something that, when compared to Christ, was nothing. And Peter's reaction was that he was brought lowly. He fell down and he said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That was the beginning of Peter's ministry. In a similar way, Isaiah, sometimes called the Shakespeare of the prophets, he's good at words. He's good at speaking. He's good at writing. What is it that he sees, that he is ashamed of when he sees God? His own lips. His lips. Depart, he says, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. 
he calls down a curse upon himself. Woe is me, for I, I am un, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He was unclean like the leper king, Uzziah, when it came to the Lord. That's what, what lepers would cry out when, when other people were near. Go away, I'm unclean, unclean. That's what, that's what Isaiah says here. Like a leper compared to God who was holy, holy, holy. I may have mentioned this before, but in the, the hunchback of Notre Dame, he sees that the, the beautiful girl in the story, and he says, I never knew how ugly I was until I saw how beautiful you are. That's what happens with us. We compare ourselves to others. You might be a little bit better than somebody around you in some way, but lift your eyes higher. You see the Lord in His glory, and you are humbled. You are laid low. And that, that is where ministry begins. That is where missions begins. When God says, who will go for us? Who, who will I send? Isaiah doesn't say, send me because I'm the best. I'm the best speaker around. No, he knows that he's unclean. He is sent out from a sense of God's grace. And if we go out on the mission field thinking, we're better, and we ride into the mission field on our white horse, saving the day, it will destroy your ministry. We are sinners, absolutely in need of God's grace. No way to stand before him without his saving work. And it is in that, that knowledge that we go out and share the world as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. In Jesus Christ. So when, when Isaiah sees the Lord and he is brought low, he confesses his sin and the sin of his people. And he's, he's blown away by it. He has no idea how, how can I stand before such a God? How can this people stand before such a God? If only they knew, if only they knew what God really was, they would be terrified. They would run away in fear. We would think we have no hope to stand before the Lord, the Lord that you must stand before in judgment one day, that you must answer to. And there is no escaping His presence. You cannot run away. You cannot hide. This holy God will gaze upon you and there will be nothing that you can hide behind. Except the cross of Christ. Except Jesus Christ, the Savior that He has provided to clothe you with His righteousness. That is their only security. And that is what Isaiah experiences here when he cries out about his, his lowliness, his sinfulness. Woe is me, he confesses. Like that man who, the tax collector who wouldn't even lift up his eyes, but just said, 
Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That man went home justified. So did Isaiah. One of these burning ones flies to get a burning coal from the altar. It's so hot that he has to use tongs to grab it. And he flies over to Isaiah, which would be just a scary thing to experience for one. But he places this coal right on Isaiah's lips. And he says this wonderful words, how wonderful it would be to hear God say it to us directly. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Well, that's a pretty special coal, isn't it? Special fire. Why would this atone for his sins? It's not really the coal itself, is it? Where did the coal come from? It came from the altar. There, sacrifices were made for sin. The coals were brought into the temple I mentioned before. That's where the incense was laid. It was the coals from the, from the sacrifice, and it, which always pointed forward to Jesus Christ. His sacrifice. That is how we can stand before such a holy God and live. Jesus Christ, His sacrifice applied to us, takes away our sins. I wonder if that coal burnt Him. If it hurt, it may have, but it may not have. I I think it's like the Holy Spirit coming down upon the disciples at Pentecost, which I don't think hurt them. God has a way of purifying us, and he takes all the pain himself. And so this is what we see here. It's a picture of the gospel a man brought low by God's greatness and then lifted up again by God's goodness and then sent out into ministry. That's the way it is for every Christian. We are laid low by God when we see who He is. Then we are ready to share the gospel with others. You know, the next time that Isaiah will say, that God is high and lifted up, it will be in Isaiah 52 when he's talking about how Jesus would be high and lifted up. Jesus would be lifted up and he would be a man who was marred more than any man and he would sprinkle many nations. And then it goes into speaking about how Jesus Christ would suffer, that he would bear our, our burdens and that he would be so weighed down with shame that we would hide our faces. And what a contrast that is, that here angels cover their faces because he's so holy they cannot behold him. And we would hide our faces because his shame was so profound it embarrassed us to be around him. But it was our shame that he carried, our sin that he bore, By his stripes, we are healed. Jesus Christ said in John 3 that as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so he too would be lifted up. What a contrast that is. The same one that Isaiah sees on the throne, and it is the Lord Jesus. Because in John it also says, 
Isaiah wrote these things because he saw Jesus' glory. Jesus is the one who was always pictured by the tabernacle. It was always a picture of Christ's coming. The tabernacle is just a, a preview of Christmas. The altar is a preview of Easter. It's all a museum of God's future work, Jesus' future work. That's what Isaiah experienced. We've seen it too. We've seen it more clearly when Jesus Christ tabernacled among us and took on flesh, when he sacrificed himself, bore God's wrath, And then he commissioned us to go out into all the world after pouring out his spirit. He takes our cup of suffering. He gives us the cup of of blessing. He sends us out that we might serve one another, that we might bring the gospel to the world. And so here at the end of the the passage where he says, "Who who will go for us? Who shall I send? Isaiah doesn't say, Send me, send me, because I'm the best. I want the honor. It's God was gracious to me. I have unclean lips. The people around me have unclean lips. God can save them too. There is grace enough for them. It was the same thing with Paul. God laid him low. God blinded him for days. And he realized that he was the one under the curse. And then he went out and he said, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom he is the foremost. But Jesus was trying to display his perfect patience in Paul so that everyone might see that there is grace for them too. That no one of you, doesn't matter what you've done, you are not outside of God's saving hand. He can save you if you come to Christ. And no one you have ever met is outside of his mercy if they just turn to him. I think that's one of the reasons why God often chooses the worst person around and then sends them out into the ministry. He sends out the the woman at the well who didn't seem like she had any friends at all. She becomes the missionary to Samaria after saying what great things God has done for, for her. When Jesus goes across to the Decapolis and the this demon-possessed man with a a legion of demons within him runs out. He's got naked. He's got chains hanging off of him. He's bleeding. He's been up in the tombs, screaming, cutting himself. It's a terrifying thing. That's the missionary that God chose. God rescues him and says, no, you stay here. You go out and serve these people. Tell them what great things God has done for you. Jesus, like we might think, well, Jesus would choose the smartest guy in the Decapolis, the, the, most, the most distinguished person. Jesus chooses the worst often. That's what we see in Corinthians. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were wealthy. Not many of you were, were intelligent. But God chose the weak things of the world to shame the mighty, that the grace might all go to him, that everybody could see To God be the glory. He is the one who has rescued us. He can rescue you too. With the Lord there is abundant redemption. Therefore, O Israel, hope in the Lord. 
wait on the Lord. As you go out into missions, as you go out to serve, and you are all called to serve, and you are all called to missions in some way, we, we, we contribute by praying, we contribute by giving, we go out and we serve the people around us. We are all God's representatives here on earth, and you are all called to serve your neighbor. You must go in the strength that God has provided. Empty yourself of any sense of your own worthiness. Look to Christ to be the one who, who enables you to be saved and who can save others. And we pray that God's glory would be recognized throughout all the world because it's not in our own skill as missionaries that we bring people to God, but it is by pointing them to Jesus Christ. He is the one who does it all. It's there at the cross where we begin to understand the depth of our sin, the height of God's holiness, the perfection of justice, the extent of his mercy, and what Jesus actually accomplished for us. That is where the gospel shines the brightest. Brothers and sisters, you, like Isaiah, have been forgiven much. If you have been forgiven much, love much. Let us strive to grow in the sense of the knowledge of, of God's majesty so that God would make us a people who tremble at his word, who long to be holy, and who are leaping at the opportunity to be sent out to serve God, to tell others what wonderful things God has done for me. For is not this king worthy of your love? Is he not worthy of your life? His gospel doesn't just show his glory. It also purchases you. The very blood that forgives you calls you into his service. You belong to the Lord. Let us glorify him in how, whatever ministry he lays before you. But let us do so for all our lives. For it's all bought by him. Holy, holy, holy is his name. The whole earth is full of his glory. Let us glorify him too in all that we say and do. Lord, we ask that you would humble us under a sense of your majesty, who you are. We ask that you would use our lives however you choose to use them. But we pray that we would be in your service forever, that we would no longer consider just what we desire, but that we would look for your will to be done in our lives. We pray that you would humble us like Isaiah, send us out like Isaiah, help us to glorify you like the angels above. And we pray for a lost world around us that needs the gospel just as much as we needed it, that needs your grace, needs to know you. Lord, send out workers into your harvest that you might be proclaimed not just from the heavens above, but everywhere on earth, your name would be hallowed and your will would be done and your kingdom would come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.